Welcome to the 77th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helberg and my co-host, as always, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone. Today, it's an honor to be speaking with Kramer Wimberly, lead dive instructor and board member of DWP, Diving with a Purpose. DWP has been a leading force in identifying and preserving slave shipwrecks across the world's waters and the African diaspora. Along with being an archaeology survey diver featured in the documentary series Enslaved with Samuel L. Jackson, Kramer works with DWP's youth training program and its coral restoration efforts. Before he became a master dive trainer, he was, among other things, a prosecutor and arson investigator for the city of Newark, New Jersey. So lots to cover here. But before we get into American and world history discoveries underwater, let's start with your own history, Kramer. Like a lot of New Jersey guides, you started with wreck diving, but what was your first and earliest connection to the ocean? Actually, my first connection to the ocean was uh, a, a movie called The Incredible West Olympic with, uh, with Don Knotts. Right? <laughs> People of our age will remember it, but at the time, as a kid uh, growing up in New Jersey, sitting in front of a television and watching this little man go to the to Coney Island and stumble into the water, turn into a fish. I was like, great. Right? If that can happen, I want to do that. <laughs> so I waited until the family took a uh, uh, trip to uh, Sandy Hook, right? Went to the beach, right? Walked into the ocean, right? And expected to turn into a uh, fish as uh, maybe 10, 10 years old, somewhere around there. And it didn't happen. <laughs> right? So I actually started to drown. The lifeguard pulled me out. Oh, right. um, I figured, okay, um, something must have gone wrong, right? So I turned around and I walked back into the ocean. Right? I said, okay, I'll, I'll I'll do it right this time, and, and I started to drown again. And lifeguard pulled me out and says, "Can you swim?" And I said, "I don't know. I don't think so." So I figured at that point that I had to learn how to swim before I could get back into the ocean, then turn into the fish. But uh, that was my beginnings, and that never happened. And we're glad we have you here talking with us. And you came as close as us for bipedal air breathers can, which is you became a diver. So when did you become a diver? How did that evolve? Uh, I was actually on vacation in uh, Bermuda, right? At the time, uh, my my wife then uh, was Bermudian and she was at work. So I was just kind of wandering around and passed by the smallest drawbridge in the world, right? Uh, and stopped at this huge picture window and I'm standing outside looking at the picture window and a guy pops his head out and says, hey, do you want to do that? It's like, do what? He said, that. I'm like, what? He said, well, what are you looking at? A picture. What's in the picture? So I look at the picture. Oh, he said, yeah. Oh, do you want to do that? I can have you doing that in 10 minutes. So I looked at him and I looked at the picture. I looked at him and I looked at the picture said, I could do that in 10 minutes. He said, yeah. I said, make that happen. So what was, what was the picture? It was a picture uh, of the ocean and a scuba diver. Right? Oh. I just stopped and I saw the big picture window. Uh. So he locks the door and, and uh, we go through the back. He grabs some gear and throws it on the boat, locks the back door. We get on the boat and we're on our way out. Right? Uh, as, as we're going out on the boat, I said to him, well, Aren't there some lessons or something to go with this? He said, oh, I'll teach you everything you need to know on the way out. Okay. Oh. Uh, this is this is a, a while ago, okay. early, early 80s. Right. Uh, so the boat stops, he anchors, 
right? And I'm like, well, what happened to the lessons? He says, well, you, you don't really need lessons. He's putting the gear on me. He says, you do this, you do that, you do this, and we're diving, right? And I'm like, wait a minute, right? Uh, I don't know. And he pushes me in the water. We're in the water, I'm floating on the surface. I'm thinking, this is not good. This is not good, right? And before I can reach for the boat, he's uh, got the low pressure inflator and we're going down and I'm, uh, it's, this is not good. This is not good. I get my head uh, two feet below the surface, right? And I could see 150 feet, which is clear blue, no particulate, and the water was stunning. A fish went by and I was hooked and have been doing it ever since. And have gotten many qualifications as an instructor and otherwise. Um, I actually didn't become an instructor until um, early 2000. Right. Um, because at the time, all I required was an open water certification to go diving, right? good or bad of it. Uh, as an African-American going diving, it wasn't uh, me in community. It wasn't something uh, that was common. So anytime I showed up to go on a boat, there was no one who really wanted to, to buddy with me. So I had the benefit of buddying with the dive master every time I went out diving. Nobody wanted to figure, well, one, he can't swim. Right. He's got to ruin the dive. So, yeah, you know, we're going to buddy you figure it out. Can't swim because you're African-American. Right. Mm-hmm. Jeez. So all of my dive experiences from the time that I got certified for the first couple of years were always with a dive master or an instructor who's leading a dive. Right. And they would just go and do their thing. And I would buddy with them. And they'd ask if it was going to be challenging. Do you think he could handle us it? I guess so. And they said, okay, let's go. So uh, deep diving was just something I did because that's where the dive master was going. And all I had to do was model myself after the dive professionals. And is this where you got into your first uh, wreck diving? Um, Yes, because I was in New Jersey, right? And New Jersey is, uh, well, New Jersey, New York, the Northeast wreck diving capital of the world. Um, so I dove, you, you dive what you have access to. And so I would travel the world just hunting for wrecks whenever I had an opportunity to. And how did you discover and get involved with the National Association of Black Scuba Divers? Uh, that was a friend of mine in New Jersey introduced me to NAPS, National Association of Black Scuba Divers, in 2004, I believe. It was around 2004, because until then... I thought I was one of the only black divers in the world because I'd never really seen any other black divers. And what does this association do? Does it introduce you to other people or give us more of a flavor of that? My experience uh, with not really being accepted into the dive community is a common or has been a common experience for African-Americans all around the world, right? When you see uh, because of the the mistaken assumption or belief that African-Americans don't don't swim and don't dive and are unrelated to the water or the ocean. Well, for those reasons and and others, you were always kind of on your own, right? So to find people like you right, uh, who do dive, right, um, it, it's a sense of a, a sense of community that you would experience as as a dive community already, okay? Mm-hmm. Right? feeling comfortable. Right. Knowing that when you're in the water, if something happens, someone is there to help and support you. Right. Or if you have some skills to provide, 
even on on the other side. So new newer divers exposing newer African American uh, divers to to the sport um, is also a benefit of community. How nice that you can have a community that you can really relate to above and below water. So yeah, that's great. And diving with the purpose kind of grew out of this as well, or that was an origin uh, of it. No. Actually, um, Diamond with a Purpose grew out of uh, a documentary that was done by a young lady named Karuna Evero. The documentary was done based off of a book by Gail Swanson called, interestingly enough, Carrera, right? And Karuna was interviewing Brenda Lazendor, who was at the time the sole archaeologist for Biscayne National Park, right? And she believed she knew where the slave ship Carrera lay. So... Uh, Karuna was interviewing uh, Brenda as the lead character in the documentary. And somewhere in the process, they thought it might not be a good idea right, to interview some African-American divers to get their take on the, the story of the documentary and how it is they feel about um, the slave ship potentially being found. So um, they reached out to Ken Stewart who was at the time the Southern Regional Director of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, who got in contact with a number of people to be engaged in the, the documentary right? and couldn't come to be interviewed for the documentary. But after everything was done, he reached out to Brenda to ask her more about the story of the Guerrero and the work that she was doing. And what was special about the Guerrero? Uh, Greer was was and is the second wrecked slave ship to be identified, right? And you can't say documented because the it has there's no determination that the Guerrero has been located as of yet. So we're still searching and documenting the area, right? Uh, but it was uh, 561 Africans who were on that ship. So Ken got in contact with Brenda. They sat down, had conversation. Brenda was indicating, I know where the ship, where the slave ship lay, right? Uh, but in order to document it, I need help. One, because as a diver, we have to dive in buddy teams, and I don't have anyone to dive with, right? So documenting the ship is challenging. Ken asked, can anybody do it? Brenda says, I'll teach anybody who wants to learn. Ken goes home, makes a phone call, says to a group of, uh, of NABS members, instead of just diving for fun, why don't we dive for a purpose and go and find a slave ship? And diving with a purpose is born. Right? So through a small group of people that came down to be trained by Brenda, right, she, taught, she was in the process of teaching them how to do rec site documentation, right? not just for the purpose of documenting that particular ship. She wanted to be able to open it up to say, once I've taught you, I want you to go forward and teach other people. Right. Uh, but in the process of training the members who came down for that those first series series of exercises, um, she said, I don't want to take you to the location where the slave ship lay until you are completely trained and competent right, in order to document the ship because it is so significant. And prior to the, the training being completed, right, unfortunately, uh, Brenda was sick. And she passed away and she took the location of the Guerrero with her to the grave when she died. Wow. Right. It, it is believed to be somewhere between the waters on the border of the Skane National Park right? and 
the National Marine Sanctuary, which is uh, governed by NOAA. So both um, archaeologists in Biscayne National Park and archaeologists inside of NOAA are looking or have been looking uh, for the final resting place of the, the slave ship Guerrero. The Guerrero was a pirated slave ship. The whole idea of documenting the ship right, is to be able to tell the stories right, of the people who were on the ships, right, not just for the sake of, of documenting a ship. The reason why uh, DWP was formed and continues to exist as an entity even today is because there were upwards of a thousand slave ships that were wrecked and lost during the transatlantic slave trade. Right? To date, only five or less have actually been documented. Well, in terms of the African slave trade or the Atlantic slave trade, other than a movie like Amistad, most people know very little about the actual maritime aspects of that. And that's what DWP is working on. I assume you've, you've really are changing our perspectives on history, no? Hopefully, hopefully. But the whole idea, like I said, AWP is comprised of a group of recreational scuba divers. Right? That is the common thread through of all of the members of DWP, right? Um, who who have decided to engage in citizen science, and the citizen science work is in documenting shipwreck sites, right? and we document those shipwreck sites wherever they are, right? To be able to tell the stories of the people who were on those ships at the time. And there's very little that has been no that is known about the lives and the humanity of the people who were on those ships, which is why we document them to be able to tell that story. You know that there were no iron ships that were in that period of time. Most of them were wooden hull. So uh, when we're working to document a ship, there are telltale signs based off of shipwreck construction and understanding shipwreck construction. You know, if you're looking at um, something that's within the, the time frame for which a, a slave, uh, a ship associated with the slave trade would be, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, and so, so the first thing, again, prior to getting in the water, right, is finding out about the story of the people who were on the ship and finding out about the ship uh, because they know Right. There, are, there, are, there are documents that will show historically what, when this particular ship was built, right? Who built it? Who owned it? Right? Uh, and the design of the ship. So uh, you can look at uh, measurements based on the construction of the ship and look at what it is that's in the water, the remnants that are left, to determine whether or not these uh, remnants are comparable to what would have existed at the time. You with me? I'm with you. Unless the the ship has been submerged in an oxygen depleted atmosphere, most much of it is already going to be destroyed. Right? So the organisms would have taken away um, the the vast majority of the wood associated with the, the ship be, because the, the temperature would 
would and the conditions would 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 make that happen, right? Um, so you're looking for how uh, the the metal remains, right? And even those metal remains over time are going to be heavily encrusted, right? Um, with and and cause them to to be almost unrecognizable to the average eye. After a period of time, they they coated them with uh, copper sheeting. Right? Um, there were periods of time when they were using different types of of nails. Right? Some of them copper nails to attach to copper seat sheeting, so there was no oxid oxidation that took place. So and uh, the copper ends up turning green in the water, so you can see. Right, in the event that you're looking, little pieces of of green copper that remain, or or mangled pieces of of metal, right? The the iron would be encrusted. You could be looking for um, yes chains, but you wouldn't be seeing chains. It would be just this big mass of encrusted. I don't want to call it metal, right? Because you're not going to see the the metal of it, right? um, which is why it's important to have a general area where you believe the the rec site is and then to set up your 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 mapping process but cannonballs cannons anchors right, are the are the remnants that are generally visible right that um, you can key in on and figure out where uh the rep took place and once there is a recognition that this is the site then hopefully there will be a ceremony and a memorial right, that everyone can be a part of right, that that says, one, this was a tragedy for humanity, all of us. Right? And there should be the recognition that we as human beings engaged in this kind of brutal enterprise and activity. And that we should never allow something like that to happen again. Um, I'm just going to take a, a moment to transition because you work with a lot of youth uh, yes. as a mentor, um, a, a teacher, and you're underwater. And so with that, especially in Florida, you're looking at coral and sharing the beauty and also the challenges of climate change and coral challenges, destruction. So tell us about what you're doing with your CARES program, the collective approach to restoring our ecosystem. Um, I, I teach kids, but they teach me also. I bet. <laughs> um, and there, there is a nexus between the shipwrecks uh, documentation and uh, the coral reefs. And I owe credit to Developing the program based off of again uh, Brenda Altmaier from the Florida Keys National Marine Found, uh, Sanctuary, right? because she was the one who said, "What well, we've been documenting uh, many of these shipwreck sites, right? The shipwrecks wrecked on the reef, right, and impacted the environment, right, by virtue of the wrecking, right? And we need to know what kind of impact." these wrecking events have had on the life of the reef. So let us go about attempting to document the health of the reef around where these shipwreck sites have, have occurred. Even a NOAA ship once wrecked on the reef. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. So but prior to 
prior to Brenda asking that question, DWP um, and the youth program primarily uh, was working with the Coral Restoration Foundation right, out of the Florida Keys. And Coral Restoration Foundation is a wonderful organization um, that has been working to grow coral in a coral nursery and outplant it back out onto the reefs. Right? Um, about 45 years ago, there was a pathogen that entered the water that killed off the long-spined urchin. Right? Um, no one particularly cared for the long-spined urchin, especially if you have been uh, poked or stuck by one. Not pleasant, right? So no one really... But long-spined urchin is an anchor species on the reef. Right? Its sole function is to come out at night and grave the reef, eating algae. Um, and when the pathogen killed off all the long-spined urchin, algae just proliferated. That delicately balanced ecosystem was now out of balance because algae was taking over in a battle with the coral on the reef, right? Um, and making it difficult for coral to have places to grow. Coral Reef Foundation, their work is in attempting to create space for uh, chili to grow back out on the reef. So they use or they grow, um, and I'm going to stay away from the technical, they grow staghorn and elkhorn corals predominantly because they grow, well, the, the staghorn anyway grows very quickly in the water column with all of the nutrients. So you can take a coral fragment that's a, a, no bigger than your, your pinky, put it up in a water column, and inside of nine months to a year, you have this huge coral thicket that's been grown. And then you can take it from the nursery and outplant portions of that coral thicket back out onto the reef. Now, after the loss of the long-spined urchin, we began to lose, and, and you uh, recognized and communicated that earlier when we were talking, right? Much of the coral coverage and along the Florida reef track, which covers almost three, well over 350 miles of coral reef, right? Lost um, 98% of our hard coral reefs, right? As a result of that one loss and that event. And we've been attempting to correct for that um, ever since. Right? And in that 40 year period, we've gone from 98% coral loss the 95% coral loss, right, in 40 years, right, which means we mass, we need to massively. We need to step it up. Step up. He, what eco restoration, yeah. Yes. Seriously. Right. So, so we need coral restoration to, to step up 20 or 30 fold in the outplanting effort, while at the same time, right, um, pulling back on our carbon footprint, we need to stop. Uh, the dumping of 7 million tons of plastics and garbage in the ocean that we do on an annual basis. The carbon uh, global warming is causing a proliferation of carbon dioxide gas and up into the atmosphere. Now, the ocean eats and feeds off of carbon dioxide, but because we're popping so much of it into the atmosphere right now, the ocean is, is being inundated with that carbon dioxide, and now the ocean is becoming more acidic. Right. Ocean acidification is as a result of too much carbon dioxide has been pumped into the air and the ocean is absorbing. So we need we need a new generation of young divers who can be there to start that restoration and tell me and, and also young divers who don't start by walking into the ocean but and waiting to turn into fish. <laughs> I don't know, which I think we use a couple more of those, right? <laughs> dreamers. We need right. those dreamers. Yes. So DWP Cares is um, cre well, I created about five years ago 
with the intent of continuing to work with our partners to outplant coral back out on the reef and step up um, the magnitude which we're outplanting the coral and to engage in coral ecosystem monitoring, assessing the health of the coral reef by looking at those key fish, invertebrate, and substrate species that are responsible for a healthy reef. So by documenting the presence or absence of those key organisms, we can determine whether or not uh, a reef is, reef is healthy. So we outplant the coral and then do an assessment of the reef or monitoring of reefs where the outplanting has taken place. And how many young people and what ages have you recruited in right now programs? Uh, DWP um, limits the, the, the age range of the youth from 14 to 21. Um, we need to go a little bit younger, right? Because the younger we can grab kids and get to explain to them what their relationship is, right? And and how desperately we need them to engage and fix the problems that we've created. Ken Stewart, the program uh, founder, always says, right, when he meets people and talks to them, the problems that we face will not be solved by the minds that created it. And he got that from Einstein. Right? It's an Einstein quote, right? but it's true. Right? We have done a horrible job being the custodians of this planet, right? and we, we need the young people to come up with fresh ideas and a better perspective on how it is to address and fix the problem. DWP cares. Right? right now, we're limited because of the number of instructors and the number of votes and the funding that we have. So we can only take um, 16 uh, youth into our program on an annual basis. So Kramer, if people want to get more involved with uh, Diving with a Purpose, uh, how do they do that? They can go to the DWP, Diving with, diving with a Purpose, full, no, no spaces, no dots, um, dot org. Kramer, we want to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. And I look forward, and so does David, to more opportunities to interact with you and the organizations that you're with. And congratulations on your success. Thank you so much. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May, the theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier, tear, tear, off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.